Here we go, here we go. Welcome to Police Pod Talk. Whoop, whoop, it's the police. Don't look in your rearview mirror. This podcast covers the latest police news along with hitting the hot topics you've been talking about all week. I'm your host, Cleveland. Thank you for joining us. Hey folks, welcome back again to Police Pod Talk. We're back at it again, and I am again pleased to have a guest with me today. It's Teresa Jularette, right? Teresa Jularette. I got it right, see? (laughs) Okay. And she's here today, and Teresa, you can say hey to the people out there so they can hear you. Hello, everyone. All right. Teresa's going to explain what she does and how she got involved and who she's working with. And again, I think we're going to be working together in the, in the near future on a whole lot of things, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah, which should be fun. All right, Teresa, you go right ahead and explain to the listeners uh, what you do and how you became to be that way. Go all ahead. All right. All right. Well, first, thank you for having me here and for giving me an opportunity to share my story and talk a little bit about my son today. Um, my story starts with just my involvement in Java in general. Um, I was asked to join the leadership team after my family also lost a loved one to homicide. Um, My granddaughter's aunt was murdered um, at the age of 21, Hmm. and that case remains unsolved. She was murdered in January of 2018. And so being the voice that just her mom just did not have at the time while she's grieving, um, I just, I thought, you know, same as what others thought. The an unsolved homicide is not okay, especially right. when the streets are talking. You have names, you you have evidence, and as it unfolds, you just question why is there not an arrest. Mm-hmm. And so when we formed, we were just loving on and supporting families um, that were also going through the same thing and just learning so much along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, towards the end of 2018, we uh, met Dee, who uh, did a prior podcast as well, and she was in search of her of her grandson, and we just started walking alongside of her. And again, supporting, but feeling at the same time just so unequipped because mm-hmm. I could go home to my kids at night. Right. You know, these these newfound friends that I have, like they, they just had no closure, and, you know, missing persons was just such a, a realm that we just didn't have any experience in. Right. But I still had my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of segue into introducing my son and, and my story. Uh, my son's name is Christopher. Um, he, he preferred to go by Chris. Um, but just a 23-year-old kid, just a great kid, great son. My only son um, was just a, a kind soul, just mm-hmm. a, a loyal friend, just had no enemies, just was a friend to everyone. Right. Um, but would just bring friends my way to just, mm-hmm. you know, mom, my friend needs help. He needs somebody to talk to. And right. was just that kind of guy. Um, he was a, a big secret keeper. His friends told him a lot of stories that he took with him to the grave. You know, I, mm-hmm. I say that because he was very loyal to everyone that he encountered. Um, my son was not immune to trauma, um, I think, just everything that I've learned in the last three years, it, just mental health plays a big part right. in all of our kids' lives. This generation just is not equipped to handle all of the losses. Uh, my son, in a short window of time, lost friends to homicide, 
to suicide, to car accidents. Um, and he, he was just struggling, tr- right. struggling to just find his way through mm-hmm. his own grief. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, me not really experiencing what he's going through. I, I didn't lose my first friend until I was, you know, much older in age right. than he was. And so just thinking, you know, maybe you need counseling or maybe you need something. And, and so we did seek medical uh, medical help and right. they prescribed medication and hmm. He was he was angry at that, you know. He's like, "Mom, this this medication is for depression. I'm not depressed. Mm. My heart hurts. I miss my friends. Mm. I don't know who to talk to. Nobody understands what I'm going through. I'm not going to take the medicine, you know. Hmm. I don't want to be medicated." Right. And so just kind of working through what is it that you need and what can I do as a mother? Because I'm sure there's things that he has inside that he doesn't want to share with me, but mm-hmm. he needed to find his person. Well, he ended up um, getting into some legal issues and wound up in jail. And um, at that point is when I thought, okay, I have to start implementing this tough love that I hear so much about mm-hmm. that I'm I'm terrible at. But you know, something's got to give. I need to right. put my foot down, set some rules. And uh, when he asked if he could do home detention at my house. I thought, you know, that's I've had friends that have been in that system before, mm-hmm. and I would also be violated as if I'm the criminal. You know, I'm opening up my home right. to these officers, and right. they're not the nicest when they come in and rummaging through your things. And But I thought, you know, this is my chance to know where he is every day and just make sure, helicopter mom that I am, mm-hmm. you know, he's going to go to his classes and finish this program, and he's going to do it successfully under my watch. Right. And he did. He did. He, mm-hmm. he completed his program and was released to probation, <clears throat> and it was at that moment of time where I feel like the downward spiral started to happen with him. But being on probation, I thought, you know, I have all, all the confidence in the world in the system at this point from a probation perspective. You know, the classes are going to make him better. They're going to make him dig within and help him see the other side of things and maybe help him with coping mechanisms right. and um, keep him in check because right. now he's got to report to them right. often. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I started just noticing this odd behavior, this uh, just somebody that wasn't him was standing before me the this you know this angry person this person that seemed like he was under the influence of something but again he's on probation so they they drug test for mm-hmm. things that i would be concerned with right. and but he was still just something was not right but i just could not put my finger on it um there was just i always felt like he was high mm-hmm. And again, with the anger and things just coming out of nowhere, I just thought, you know, he's, he's still struggling. He still needs help. Um, he violated probation. Um, he was found, well, he, he ran from the law at that point, was, was, had a warrant out for his arrest for a couple months. And when they finally caught up to him, um, he was nodded off at a stoplight. Mm. And so they took him in on his warrant. And it was at that time that I thought, okay, well, maybe maybe getting away from the streets, away from the environment that he's in is going to 
you know, sober him up or, or fix whatever is wrong. He's in jail now. He's in a good place. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's right. going to be away from all of these risks out here on these streets. Right. Um, so he was in jail for a good maybe three months and talked to him often. We talked about goals and well, how he's going to turn his life around. He's got a son. You, know, you got you to gotta live for him and do things that, you know, be a good role model. And so mm-hmm. we had lots of good jailhouse conversations, you know, they right. always talk to you about how the, the positive things, what they're going to do differently oh, when yeah. they get out. Right. Well, the day he was released, um, it was Mother's Day of 2020. And I tell people that that is my, my last best day hmm. that I've had that I can remember. And um, he, I, I made him a big breakfast, you know, because the jailhouse food is just nothing desirable. And so I had both of my kids there, my grandkids, and we just, I remember him handed me this big bouquet of sunflowers and was just, you know, mom, you know, I'm just so glad to be home. And we had a really good time. That was around the same time that the stimulus checks were rolled out. And so his check was still, it was there waiting for him, waiting to be cashed. And so he, that's one of the first things he did when he was released from jail. Mm-hmm. And so after, after breakfast, he went along his way and caught up with friends. And, um, you know, he, he lived with his girlfriend at that time and, okay. and their child. And right. so I said, okay, things, things are looking up, things are going to be good. Mm-hmm. And so I let a lot of my guard down. You know, mm. I thought, okay, He's got it. He's, you know, we're going to go get another chance at, at life here. Well, within 46 hours of his release, um, I got a call from his girlfriend, and she was, she was mad. Um, she had talked to him earlier that morning. She was at work. Um, she talked to him earlier, and he sounded fine. Well, I don't know what made her call him back, but at that point, he had been slurring his words, and she was mad. You know, not mm-hmm. my house, not, right. we're not doing this again. You need to go and get him, and I, I want him gone. Like, he's, he's not better, he's lying, you know, mm-hmm. he's doing these things. Well, meanwhile, her landlord had called her. Her landlord lived across the street and was one of those hovering landlords that needs to know everything that his tenants are doing, everybody that's coming and going. And thank goodness, because they had shared, he shared a picture with her of a gentleman that was outside, and my son invited him into the home, and this landlord took pictures of him Hmm. and sent them to his girlfriend and said, look, I said, no boys at the house, you know. Right, right, right. And so she, again, is mad at him. And I think that's might have what made her prompt, prompt her to call him to see, like, who mm-hmm. is this guy? Who do you have at my house? Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward to me driving there. Um, I called I called Stacy, actually, um, because I told her something's wrong. I got a call. I'm on my way. My intention was I'm going to – he's going to answer the door, and I'm going to – smack him around a little bit and just, you know, what are you doing? Like, we just talked about this. This is not in line with your goals. What are you doing? Well, I arrive and the house is locked up, the windows, the shutters are down, and I just can't gain access. The landlord's outside and he's telling me nobody's home. I said, I know there's somebody home. I know, I know he's here. And I said, can you please let me in? And he said, no, I can't do that. I don't know who you are. I said, okay, well, 
she's on her way, but something's wrong. So I don't, something does not feel right. He's like, nope, sorry. So we waited and we waited. Or I, was, I was by myself waiting and again, banging on the door and I could hear nothing. And I thought, okay, he's, he's ashamed. He's regretful. Mm-hmm. He's, I'm not going to say he's afraid of me because I'm, I was never that parent. You right. know, I was never, yeah. but he doesn't want to answer the door because he doesn't want to face what I have to say. Mm-hmm. Well, his girlfriend arrives and unlocks the door for us. And he's the way that the house is set up. The living room is the first room that you walk into. And okay. there's my son sitting on the couch and he, he looked like he was asleep. And, um, so instinct, you know, I go up to him and I'm grabbing him and I'm shaking him and I'm wake up, wake up. And he's not breathing. He's not responding. And so I've been, I've been certified to do CPR for, I, I've worked in the medical industry for majority of my adult life. And mm-hmm. so we've do the training and everything. And I, I'm, I'm trained for this. So instinct kicks in. I call 911 and the, the lady or guy on the phone, I don't even remember, um, you know, they say you have to place him on the ground and start doing your compressions and all of this. And I'm doing all of it as if, you know, I'm a whole out of body experience. Right. Never in a million years did I imagine I'd be given my own child CPR, you know, mm-hmm. trying to breathe my life into him and just beating on his chest and just, just try, just praying, you know, and, and not knowing what to do. And it felt like a long time before the EMTs arrived, but it really wasn't a long time. And so they took over, and I remember walking away thinking, this isn't happening. Like, things like this don't happen to my son. Like, did he have a medical condition? Mm-hmm. What did, did his heart fail him? Like, what is going on? I had all these questions. But knew he was in the right hands. And, again, this was on the brink of COVID. Um, May, this was May 12th of 2020. Mm-hmm. So when um, the ambulance, when the EMTs arrived, they started administering um, some... Uh, uh, Narcan. Right. And at the time, I didn't know what Narcan was. I didn't know what they were doing. I just knew that they were actively trying to save him. Right. And they did regain a pulse. And so they told me they were going to be taking him to the hospital, but I could not come because of COVID. Uh. And so they sent me home. And by this time, I have my entourage of, you know, Stacy had, had arrived and she had called some of our other, other Java sisters, and I'd, I'd called my daughter, and you know my son's girlfriend was there. Had a couple of people there with her, and we all went home and to my house. And I remember calling into work, telling my my coworker, like, let our boss know. I don't know what's happening. Chris is fine, but I can't go back to work. Like I've got tons of people at my house, and I just need to wait to go and you know see him. Wait until I get the call. And so just the, the volume of people at my house just quadrupled in size right. as the minutes went by. Mm-hmm. And I get a call, and it was the exchange of the hospital. And I answered the phone, and I had the phone on speaker because, you know, again, I wanted – we're all concerned. We're all there for a reason. So I wanted to, um, to let everybody hear at once. And so the gentleman introduced himself as the chaplain for the hospital – and his word, he he asked, you know, where I was and 
could I come to the hospital? And I said, yeah, I just, I need to know which hospital and I need to know which room number, like, Mm -hmm. where do I go? And it was complete silence. And again, you know, this house full of people and it just did not feel okay. And I said, is my son alive? And he said, no, your son did not make it. And so, again, the entire room, if you could just imagine the emotion. And so they said that I could come and say my last goodbyes. And so we did. Uh, One of my Java sisters drove my daughter and my son's girlfriend and me to the hospital and took us into where he was. And, again, he looks like he's sleeping. He's so peaceful. And, you know, the, this, the, the monitors, they're wrong. He's, he's going to wake up. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong. Like, give him more medicine, whatever right. it was that you revived him with earlier. Give him more. He's going to be fine. He's going to walk out of this. And, no, he was not fine. Um, and at that moment, um, that day is when the tables turned and – I'm the one. I'm the mom that's experiencing this trauma. I'm again so many questions. What happened? That's and that's when when you lose a child or when you lose a loved one, the very first thing that everybody wants to know is what happened. I don't know. And I now I need to wait. I need to wait on the autopsy. I need to wait on the toxicology. Um, drugs did cross my mind, but it was probably one of the furthest, furthest things from my mind. Um, at a, as a young child, he had a heart condition. So I thought, okay, this is something that flared up. I'm not going to label him anything until I get these results back. And it takes weeks to get some of that information. So Java, this my whole involvement with supporting the moms and my advocacy early on um, with the tables turning, these moms were just there for me and just supporting me and lifting me and making calls for me and, you know, making sure that I eat and do all of the the necessary functions of life that just go out the window when mm-hmm. you're experiencing this. I mean, I don't even think I moved from my, my spot on the couch for days. Um, and again, my house is a revolving door. But the friends that I made that were once strangers – that have also felt in that moment that I'm feeling was monumental to me because they were able to fill some voids that I, I really need. I really needed support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had really good family support, really good friend support, but those Java sisters said something, you know, they've just the right words or even the unspoken words, just the tears because they've, they share that emotion with me and that just meant so much. Um, I get the, well, we end up, you know, having to to plan his funeral services and everything was difficult because again, COVID limited a lot of what you can do. And mm. we we had his his service and and everything, and he was laid to rest. Um, we we had a GoFundMe because I didn't have life insurance for him. Those aren't things that you think about. You don't think about, you know, do they want to be buried or cremated? Um, what obituary picture do you pick for him that's going to be there forever? And just everything, all, all the whole entire walk of having to lay your child to rest. That was a terrible two-week time frame. So fast forward to getting the toxicology back, um, and I read that he had 10 times the lethal limit of fentanyl in his system. Mm. That was the first time that I had seen 
that heard of fentanyl. You know, what is this? You mm-hmm. know, I'm familiar with the the heroin, the cocaine, like all of the hard drugs that you hear that people overdose from. Never right. have I, I'm not familiar with this. What is this? So I started researching, Googling, and just looking for answers. And a friend of mine pointed me to a local recovery group here in Fort Wayne. And I called this gentleman who had just happened to be on the news and was talking about recovery. And I thought, well, if I'm going to get some answers, I need to start with somebody that's been through it and is helping others and trying to see, like, how did this not hit my radar? Right. You know, they're out here trying to save lives and trying to, to guide folks to sobriety. But... You know, my I, I would have argued with you that day. My son was not an addict. Like he didn't need recovery. He was he suffered from trauma. Um, he you he he smoked marijuana. You know, I was aware of those things that he tried to use to mask his pain. But these hard drugs, like not my son. He was not an addict. And I tell people now that I was so uneducated as to what addiction really is. Um, you know, trying to mask your pain, trying to to search for that high, trying to just take the pain away, to self-medicate, basically. Um, these these kids are just, you know, they're being given things that that really do, they, they work magic if that's what you're seeking. You know, they really do get you high. But at the same time, now we're introducing drugs that are laced with fentanyl mm. that are killing people. Hmm. And so I, I met with these individuals, and they answered, they spent a lot of time with me. They, they answered a lot of my questions, but then with those answers came more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the main things that, that I took away from our sit-down was this was not a parental failure. You know, there was nothing that you could have done right. to combat this. Like, this is, this fentanyl's been around for some years, and we've been talking about it. I thought, well, where have I been? You know, living under a rock. I, I just, it never hit my ears. And so then I started thinking hindsight, the trauma, the self-medicating, the masking, the, the, the jail stints, the just spirals, you know, all this stuff started falling into this puzzle. Um, and I started wondering, like, did his, did his, this experience, the exposure to fentanyl, was he using it before? Like, was this his first time, or had he had it? Had he used it before? Um, and it was at that time I discovered that on probation, when you're on adult probation, there's a standard drug panel. Mm-hmm. So all these times that I thought, oh, he's on something, he's acting weird, he's still being drug tested. They mm-hmm. were they were doing their job in that respect but I discovered that fentanyl is not part of the standard drug panel. You have to order it in addition to the standard panel. It's like an additional $10, however much it costs. Wait, wait, wait. You have to order it? No. Your probation officer that you that's administering the okay. drug test, when your number's called and it's your time to go take a <laughs> test. But, but how would the probation officer know to order that? They wouldn't. So they, if they suspect, like if your charges have to do with fentanyl, okay, then, or then, yes, if they suspect, or they can just randomly add it to your test and wow. drop you for fentanyl at that time. Okay, I, okay. 
And then later I find out that that is not a secret. In the probation community, the offenders, it's not a secret that it's not part of the standard panel. Mm. So to remain under the radar, your, your drug test will come back clean. You can very much be on fentanyl and it will not come up unless you're taking something else that's been laced with fentanyl. That'll come up if it's on the standard panel, but straight fentanyl will not. Hmm. And still, I checked a couple months ago and it's still not a part of the standard panel. And I would very much like for it to be because I feel like I feel like the exposure to what he's on, maybe he would have violated earlier, you know, maybe um, well, in addition to that, being released from jail and within 46 hours being gone, I think tolerance played a big factor in his passing. Maybe he had tried it beforehand and maybe had some stashed after the fact right. and dabbled in it. Maybe this gentleman that came to the door to visit had something to do with it. Um, he is a known or was, I guess, a known fentanyl dealer, had been dealing fentanyl in the community for for a few years at this point. His hmm. name was very well known to law enforcement. But he was still walking among us, you know, doing what he does. Um, hmm. This gentleman is incarcerated now, um, and so hopefully there's some lives being saved there. Um, I'll never, when, at the time when, you know, I was trying to resuscitate my son and, and all of this, the officers being there and all of this that happened, when everybody left and I looked around, my son's cell phone is there, my son's wallet is there. Um, I didn't really get a card, you know, like in, in the TV shows, they give you a, 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 a business card, like if you have any questions, call me. Right. There was nothing. So it wasn't until after I started having meetings and sit-downs, um, I, I have a friend that we had a prior working relationship, and now he's a detective. Mm -hmm. And so he's somebody that I can trust, and so I just called a meeting with him. And I, I, my questions at that time were, is, is there an open case on my son? My son wasn't even in the computer. There was no investigation. There was, this was just chalked up as an overdose. Close the book, end of story, no case number, no anything. And I said, well, that would make sense as to why I have his phone in his wallet. Right. Generally, when there's a case, they collect that as evidence, right? Um, I believe there's things in his phone that maybe could lead us to some conversations. Um, the kids use Snapchat a lot. Um, and if there is some Snapchat communications, those messages go away. And that's one of the problems that families have is those conversations on Snapchat aren't traceable. Once mm. you read the message, it's gone. Like you can't go back like Facebook and go back and see right. what somebody said in 2020. Right. And so, but nobody will ever know because my son's phone is locked and it's in my possession. So what do I do now? How do I, because again, like the homicides, there, there's so many unsolved, but they're open investigations. You know, whether they're actively being worked or not, there is a case. For my son's story, there is no case. So who do I call and what do I do now? Like, will there ever be an arrest in my son's case? Because in my, in my mind, it's murder. We call it drug-induced homicide, you know, especially when you add these lethal, lethal fentanyl drugs. It's a homicide just as if somebody would have had been murdered violently. Right. 
So I'm um, trying to just navigate through what can I do, and I cannot be the only one. I started um, reaching out to Facebook and joining all these groups and realizing the thousands of families that you take my son's name inserted into their story, and it's the same story hmm. all over the nation. So I linked up with a few Facebook groups. Um, one of them is a group called Appalled, and it stands for Association of People Against Lethal Drugs. And so I met some some family members through that, and I linked up with a group called Lost Voices of Fentanyl, and they were going to be having a rally um, in Washington, D.C. Hmm. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to, because what better, how, there's, to be surrounded in the company of people that know what you're feeling. Right. Locally, it's been monumental. Right. So taking it to Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. and link up with these parents, I wanted to know, like, it was there an investigation on your child's case? Right. What have you done in your state? Because the drugs are the same, but the states and the laws in those states are so different. Hmm. And there are arrests that have been made in some of the families that I've met. And there's some that, no, the police are giving them the runaround, and you really can't make an arrest because it's really hard to prove the exchange. You know, like the, the picture that I have that the landlord took outside of that house that day, there's no evidence of an exchange there. So if that was the guy, there's no proof. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that story just echoes from family to family. Um, we The rally was very emotional. Um, we were in front of the Chinese embassy um, and again, learning everything that I've learned along the way, I've learned that the beast of what fentanyl is and where it comes from, mm -hmm. and it's it it gets very political very quickly because um, the, you know the border crisis and the 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 derivatives that make up fentanyl come from China. And they get passed to the Mexican cartel, you know. And when you hear these big names, you know, I hear Mexican cartel and I think, wow, big mobster operation. You know, this is bigger than me. This is bigger right. than my son. This is right. bigger than our local problem. Now I'm meeting these families on a national level. This is bigger than them. But collectively, there's strength in numbers. So we all unite and we are forced to be reckoned with, right? Mm -hmm. We have developed this army still not being listened to. Um, but our rally was right in front of the Chinese embassy to make that statement. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the, right. we know what you're doing. You're killing right. an entire generation. You're affecting, you know, these are military-aged children. These are children. There's people that complain about, you know, you go out to eat and your service isn't what it used to be before COVID. It really doesn't have much to do with COVID. It has to do with an entire generation of people that would maintain these jobs, these people that would go to the military. These This generation is dying hmm. at the hands of other countries. And so then now here we are, this weapon of mass destruction and learning everything um, hmm. along the way. Um, and I don't know if you want me to keep going. No, yeah, um, you're on a roll. Could, I'm just listening. Go ahead. We could go on and on. Um, so that was my first wa rally in Washington, D.C. Um, not that long later, I got a message from a friend that said, hey, Jim Banks is talking about you on Facebook. And I said, well, that's 
what's he saying? Who's Jim Banks? Like, what's he saying? How, why is he talking about me? And they said, uh, he's the congressman, one of the congressmen for the state of Indiana. Oh, okay. Well, point me to his page and his post. And he had was talking about families and fentanyl. And mm-hmm. he called out my son's name and my name. And, you know, this, this needs to stop. And if, you know, this many were dying um, at the hands of something else, um, w- there would be more awareness, more people talking about it. But because it's fentanyl... It's not getting the attention that it deserves. And so I reached out to Jim Banks' office and asked for a meeting. And then several months went by, you know, and I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm getting names of politicians. And is that the route that I need to go? Is I just need to, I'll talk to anybody that's willing to listen at right. this point. So fast forward to now it's time for this Lost Voices of Fentanyl to conduct their second annual rally. And so I had made plans to go to that as well. Well, Jim Banks's office calls me and says, hey, you know, we've, we would really like to invite you to Washington, D.C., and we want to have a sit down, um, a congressional sit down with other congressmen from other states, and we want you to share your testimony. And I thought, well, that's huge. My my son's name and his story is re- is doing great things, you know. Mm-hmm. But again, not seeing a whole lot of there, there. Nothing's being solved. More kids are dying. I'm right. still meeting families, even locally. It's just a, a a pandemic of families that are just coming our way, and just still have the same questions that I initially had. Um, so I ended up being the person that I really needed. In 2020, and you know, here we are. Then fa- that's this is 2022, and it's still happening, still happening. So I told Jim Banks's office that I just so happened to be. You know, that's how God works. I'm already going to Washington. These are the dates that I'm booked to go. Mm-hmm. Can we have our sit down then? And so it was coordinated where I went, and um, we sat at the round table. And had a few minutes to share a story, and one of the moms that went shared a big box of obituaries that she had collected from these groups and asked for the congressman to deliver these obituaries to the president. Wow. Like, he is, our voices are not being heard. Right. These are all of our kids, all of these little pamphlets from their, their funerals. You know, right. look at their faces. These are not bad kids. These are some kids um, were experimenting. Some kids lost their life after just trying something one time. Mm-hmm. Others were addicts and got their hands on a wrong batch, on, right. on a bad batch, and, and lost their lives that way. But these are all great kids with great futures. So Congressman Banks um, agreed. You know, They all agreed that they would make sure that the president got this delivery. And so then we had our rally, um, the whole reason for me going there that year. And this time the rally included a march to the White House. Okay. And so talk about breathtaking. Talk about just what a statement. You know, we've all got our, our signs with our kids and our, our, our kids' faces on our shirts and right. just banners and just everything. And people along the way on our march are asking, like, what are you guys doing? And we've never heard of fentanyl, so we're educating along the way. Mm-hmm. And we do our our chants and everything in front of the White House. And, again, that felt very empowering. But at the end of the day, we're not being heard, even still. And this is two years after right. my son loses his life. 
So we came home and, and you know, I stand, it, it always gives me the extra, it lights the fire, mm-hmm. you know, because right. again, what is little old me going to do? It doesn't matter because I'm doing something right. because I'm not going to just sit back and continue to let this happen um, and still try to honor my son's name along the way, you know, and still knowing that that bad things really do happen to good people mm-hmm. and leaving his son behind you know his the day his son was born was the best day of his life and now his son is left without a father so making sure that his son is protected right. and you know and there's lots of kids you don't ever hear about the kids left behind not only in homicide cases but in overdose cases you don't hear and there's so many so many kids that are left without parents, so many siblings left without best friends. So um, locally, uh, taking what I've learned with all of these other families, and we started doing rallies here in town. And again, that's how I'm meeting a lot of the families and connecting with them. And our families are, are we're just growing. Um, but we still feel this, this need um, to do more rallies. Um, with every rally that we have, we meet new families along the way that maybe have not been impacted but mm-hmm. know somebody that has been. Right. And so I think the rallies have brought a lot of good in the form of grief support, um, something that's very needed here in our community. Um, just with grief alone, you know, I myself have, have learned a lot of about grief because I've always thought it was something that happens to the elderly Mm -hmm. not babies you know and and speaking of babies there's infants that have died from fentanyl getting a hold of their parents supply and I mean it's just and not a whole lot of arrests um, are being made and the more research we do we realize there are laws in place they're not being utilized. Um, mm. One of the 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 things I want to do here in the near future, because you can imagine how busy we all are, all, just us being having full time jobs and just doing this in our spare time and just meeting with the families. A lot of us are awake all hours of the night talking mm. to families through their pain. Right. But then at the same time, you know, you can't bring forth, you can't talk about a problem without. A solution. You know, you mm-hmm. complain about a problem all the time, but what can we do to solve it? And, and what right. as a community can we do? Right. And just research or searching the various laws in the states. Like I said earlier, every state is different. Um, there are arrests being made in other cases, whereas in my son's case, there's not. Um, there is a law out there that I would really like for our prosecutors to pursue, um, and it's dealing a, in a controlled substance that results in death. Because I believe if they treated some of these cases more than just, uh, oh, it was just an overdose, let's go to the next call. There's a case here. There's They got their hands on it somehow. Um, and a lot of times these individuals that are dealing in these lethal drugs, they know. Mm-hmm. They've had clientele die. You know, it's, they're not, it's not a shock to them. There's people that are using actively using fentanyl that they know the risk is there, but the addiction is so severe that the risk is just kind of takes a back seat right. to the high. Right. And so if, you know, I know that if more arrests were made, it would save lives, but people that are seeking the, the kind of, um, you know, that are traumatized and just want to be alleviate the trauma by self-medicating, 
they're still going to seek. Mm, you know, arresting right. one guy is not going to clean our streets, and realistically, we know that. But removing the stigma surrounding overdose, mm. you know, these are not, it can happen to anyone. Um, removing the stigma and just bringing forth awareness that this is an issue and how how it gets into our country and, you know, educating people that way, I think has been huge. I, I like to believe that had I known about Narcan and had I known about fentanyl before May 12th of 2020, I like to believe that my son would still be here. Um, I carry Narcan now. Narcan, in this, in, locally here, we've done a very good job with uh, distributing free Narcan. Right. If you don't have Narcan in your household, I like to tell people um, you have a fire extinguisher, more than likely. Mm-hmm. Let's hope you don't need it. Same with Narcan. You never know if you know one of your children has a friend staying the night or a neighbor needs help. Carrying it with you might not save their life, but it's worth a try. You know, you could do that first dose administration. Um, the Narcan that I carry with me, it's two doses, gives you enough of that to until the EMTs arrive right. so that they can take over. And the fact that the EMTs were able to regain a pulse in my son tells me that maybe he would have had a chance mm-hmm. had I been educated in what Narcan even was at the time. Well, but at that moment, you had no clue. No clue. So you would have never been trying to prepare yourself for something like that. Never, but had the awareness and advocacy that others were doing in our community, had that hit my radar, I could have maybe been educated somewhat to not be as blindsided as I was. Again, right. needing the me today, right, right, right. then. Hindsight right. is always, it's it's trickery. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I never, and, and just what I've learned in the last three years since his passing has just been mind-blowing. Right. And then passing that on and educating others is just a passion of mine now. So you said a couple of times uh, your Java sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what that means because it seems like it's very powerful. Tell us what. Tell the listeners what does Java sisters mean? My Java sisters. Um, mainly, when I talk about my Java sisters, it's the our leadership team. Okay. Um, we have we talk daily. We're there for we talk about a lot of things. Um, we've got a, a our own text group, you know, we're just things that happen locally, you know, whether it's around any realm that we support, whether it's a homicide, whether it's a a missing person, whether it's another overdose family, we're talking about things all the time. And so we have this understanding. Um, It's almost like a, like I said earlier, that force to be reckoned with. Um, These are the sister, like, because Java is such a grassroots organization, and we're volunteers, our heart's in it, you know, and we, we, these are my sisters that, you know, they're not, they're they're a part of my family now, but they were once strangers. And to have that support from people that have walked that journey before you, some many, many years before, um, and then walking alongside and knowing, you know, things, things that maybe we've not thought of that they've experienced. And it's that whole camaraderie, the whole just unity mm-hmm. is just so, means so much. 
Um, and I, I've heard that a lot from other families that are um, members of our Java of our Java group that we meet along the way. Like they they mention Java a lot, and you know we're all humble and we all you know yeah we're just doing we're just loving on you and we're supporting you. But again, it's what they need because we understand what they're going through, right. and to have somebody walk alongside you on this awful journey. And the, we're not asking the whys because we know why and we know how. We know, um, you know, we know what it's gonna, what you're gonna need to get you through this fog. Um, because when you lose a child, there's a whole year that goes by that you're just, you know, don't even. My memory is shot. You know, things I've I've probably stuffed a lot um, inside, um, and. These I can always go to my sisters and get the support that I need. They know exactly what to say, even if it's just a simple hug. You know, I we can just unload on each other, and it's a, it's you know, kind of one of those what goes on here stays here. Oh yeah, yeah. because it's very hard to find your your people, your tribe that you can trust and with anything, including your life. That's funny because that was going to be my next question. Who do you lean on? Yeah. It's your Java sisters, right? I lean on my Java <laughs> sisters. Um, I have my family too. I have right. a really good family, um, and they support me 100% mm-hmm. through all of my advocacy. Um, my daughter, um, she, she's more of a private person than I am, but she's also been impacted in such a tremendous way. Um, you know, she knows loss from a sibling perspective. I lost my brother as well later on in life. Right. I didn't lose him in his 20s, you know. And so just lots of people hurting and just gaining the support of people who've been there is right. just huge. Right. Okay, you may know this answer or you may not. Well, first I'm going to ask you, have you met with the prosecutor here in Allen County to talk about some of these things? No, that's on my agenda. I want to call a meeting and okay. have, yes, that's, that's coming. Okay, so my next question, I'm sure someone's thinking this too. If you could have a magic wand or do whatever, what would you change to make this work, to make people aware, to make it a law, to make a change? What was the one thing you think you could do or you would be able to do? That's a loaded question. (laughs) Um, You know, and my answer, my mind goes in various different directions. I know law enforcement is doing a good job at getting a lot of these drugs off of our streets. That's happening. Um, That needs to continue to happen. Um, The usage of the laws that we have in place and possibly, you know, if if you can't build a case around my son's circumstances, what is it? What is it going to take for you to be able to build a case? And so that's information that I could get from my sit down with the prosecutors. Um, what are you? What's going to take for for an arrest to be made and to get some of these individuals off the street and to be made examples of? And maybe that will help with deterrence. Um, but I, you know, and I've people have approached me in a lot of different ways, like. If it's not fentanyl, it's going to be something else, you know, and there is something else. There's some the, the trank that's out there now, the zombie drug, um, where Narcan doesn't touch that. You know, there, there are worse things out here. But I think the backing up to making mental health a priority, I would like to see, even in the jail, you know, there's individuals in the jail 
that are not well and they are not getting the treatment that they need. And like I said earlier about the probation not testing for fentanyl on the standard panel, if they were, if that were to change today and fentanyl were to be added to the standard panel, there would be a lot of arrests. There would be a lot of individuals sent to jail. Um, jail isn't necessarily the answer for those that are um, within that substance use disorder realm. But the jail doesn't have the capacity to house all of the individuals that would then violate probation and have to go to jail. So then we would have another whole set of issues right. with the jail population. Right. I mean, so I, I don't know. The answer is multifold. But I think having to sit down with the prosecutors and just understanding what can be done, mm -hmm. what has been done. Like I meet with these other families in these other states. What can be done? What have you done? What has failed? What has worked? And taking on that task is huge. Again, right. you know, trying to maintain a job and the advocacy. And right. I've got four grandkids and my daughter. And, you know, it just, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, but there's other families that I have walked alongside after my son's passing. They're finding their voice. And my tribe is gaining momentum mm -hmm. and I feel you know it's not going to be it, it's not a one person's job it collectively needs to be a lot of individuals coming together and bringing forth the awareness and the advocacy and right. being transparent with our stories right. because I I had a choice to make did I want to accept the toxicology for what it was and move on or did I need to educate because surely I wasn't the only one right. And it was in that moment that, you know, I'm crying out to God, like, why me? Why my son? Why? And then I heard this voice, you know, it might have been God. It might have been my son. I it heard like it sounded like my son's voice. And that's in one of those, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing crazy things in my grief that I've never done before. And I'm doubting myself. But I heard this voice that said, why not you? Like, mm. who, who else? There you go. Who else? If not you, then who? Wow. <laughs> and so it was in that moment that my mind shifted and I thought, okay, I've got to rise up above this and I've got to do everything. Even if, you know, deaths are still happening, um, fentanyl is still very much a part of, it's it's circulating in our streets, but sitting back and doing nothing was not an option. Hmm. There you go. Yeah. Wow. I. <laughs> what am I forgetting to ask you? Something you something you have not said, and you thought, well, I don't want you to get in the car and drive away and go, you know, I, I forgot to say this. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I always do when I do things like this. Um, I don't know. Just, just bringing awareness to our group, um, bringing awareness to other families that are out there. You know, our, our prominent social media presence is Facebook, but there's a lot of individuals that aren't on Facebook. Right. So us reaching the families that are grieving in silence or maybe trying to navigate the judicial system mm -hmm. but not sure who to call, um, it all starts with the one phone call. Like the two gentlemen that I met with, it segued from there. You know, I get then, then they pointed me to a, a group here in town that is called um, Moms of an Addict. Okay, so I went to a couple of those meetings and met other moms who have lost children. So just the unity, getting the word out that we are here to support. Now, we're not clinical professionals, mm -hmm. 
we just speak on experience, but a lot of times, a lot of times that means way more and does way more than going and seeking medical help. Mm-hmm. Like a counsel- I've tried counseling, um, and I will try it again. I've just not been linked up with my person. You know, I didn't right. feel like um, I felt I should feel when I leave there. But just supporting, again, dropping the stigma and just making others aware that you are not alone. Mm-hmm. Like God did not intend us to do things like this by ourselves oh, no. or in a silo. So, and there are lots of, of other organizations here in town that we partner with and walk alongside with and do rallies with. The bigger we are, it's like that snowball effect. You know, it is touching. And I do, you know, I get, I do um, interviews with the news. And then I hear whenever that, the segment airs, I get a flood of, oh, I saw you on the news and, oh, you're doing good things. And, oh, I talked to my coworker about you. And then they lost their child. And then it's a snowball. Right. And it's going to get bigger. But right. supporting one another, um, we I might never get an arrest in my son's case. Mm-hmm. And I think I've accepted that, but I'm not going to let it go because I know there will be arrests in other cases. There you go. How does someone get in touch with you or uh, Java? Java. Um, we we have a website, um, javafw.org, um, and you can send us an email that way. Um, or I'm on Facebook. Like I said, I, I'm. I just turned fifty, and so Facebook is the social platform. I don't understand all the others, and nor do I want to. But find me on Facebook. Private message me. Um, I'm always willing to have a sit down, a conversation. Again, I don't have all the answers right. for you, but I can listen and maybe give you um, information, things that might you already might be aware of, or things that will help you in your personal walk and your grief journey. Right. Well, Teresa, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. And for you and your Java sisters. Yes. And we hope to be talking to you guys again a lot more uh, and keeping people informed and keeping this out in front of the public's eye and ear so they can uh, learn a little bit. Yes. So, Teresa Juloret. Yes. um, I really appreciate it. And like I mentioned to, um, geez, I can't think how many people I've talked to in the past, (laughs) one of your other (laughs) Java sisters, Mm -hmm. we're going to keep doing this. Yeah. Uh, This isn't the only one, but we're going to keep doing this and uh, keeping people educated as much as we possibly can. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you you very much for sharing. I mean, that that was a lot. That was powerful. Um, And um, I I believe by doing this, this keeps uh, Christopher... In the front of everyone's uh, mind, right? Yes. And it's, and it's probably good for you too, right? Yes, yes. Uh, I believe he's saving a lot of lives just by his story. Yeah. You know, I, I can't have him back, but just his message, his story is getting out there. And I, I already know with confidence that he has saved lives. There you go. Yep. There you go. Thank you very much. Thank I really you. appreciate it. Thank you. And folks, thanks for listening to the Police Pod Talk, and we will catch you again next week. Thanks again for hanging out with us. Remember, you can always go to policepodtalk at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook at Cleveland Junior or Police Pod Talk. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.